Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen to today as we interview experts on today's show on the politics of climate change. What is 2020 doing for climate change and what's the good news, if any? The effects of climate change are inextricably intertwined with health, which of course is what Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is all about. And these range from the World Health Organization's estimate of 7 million deaths from breathing polluted air indoors and out, through the impact of weather-related natural disasters, negative effects on crop yields and food security, and changing patterns of vector-borne diseases, that is, those diseases that are passed to humans by things like mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. And also, it impacts the shaping of social and environmental determinants of health. Internationally, this past decade saw completion of the first phase of the Kyoto Protocol, the establishment of the 2010 Climate Change Fund, and the adoption of the 2015 Paris Agreement. And 2019 may also be remembered as the year when climate change activism actually went mainstream. At the end of September, in a series of rallies timed to coincide with the United Nations Climate Summit, an estimated 6 million people in more than 180 countries took to the streets to demand far more action to cut greenhouse emissions. However, policy action in the coming decade will be absolutely crucial to achieving globally agreed upon goals to decarbonize the economy and build resilience to warmer, more extreme climate activity. And while the causes of climate change are global, health impacts are inherently local. They happen where people live, work, play, learn, and travel. And due to geography, exposure, and sensitivity to health effects, some populations are substantially more vulnerable than others. For example, cities are often on the front line of climate change due to their density and their concentration of populations and, of course, the urban heat island. Now, this is a lot to chew on, which, again, is why Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is so excited to begin our second year of broadcasting. And here today to help us unpack some of this is Dr. Philip Wallach, PhD, and he is with the American Enterprise Institute. Philip is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies America's separation of powers with a focus on regulatory policy issues and the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. 
Before joining the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Wallet was a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where he authored a study called To the Edge, Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis. He also served as a fellow with the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress in 2019. Dr. Wallach's scholarly and popular work has been widely published, and he has a doctorate in politics from Princeton University. Welcome, Dr. Wallach, and may I call you Philip? Please do. Thanks for having me with you. We're so excited that you are here to help us with some of this because it is a lot. So, Philip, thinking about the politics of climate change, let's begin by talking a little about the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which, as best I can tell, and probably the same for many others, is perhaps the most definitive and transparent statement or statement of intent by most of the world's countries on climate change. So, specifically, how is climate change defined or what is the scope of the issue or the problem of climate change, and what are the causes, and how is the urgency or significance defined and discussed in this agreement? Okay, well, let me take it from the biggest level to start. Climate change results from the emissions mostly of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that makes it quite a lot different than other kinds of pollution problems. Um, with most kinds of pollution troubles over the years that, uh, that have come from an industrializing society, the pollutants hang around in the air near where they've been emitted and cause people health problems just by being breathed into their lungs or, or ingested through their water supplies. Uh, carbon dioxide emissions are not like that. When they go into the air, they don't stay local. They achieve a global ambient level. So all around the world, the levels of, of CO2 are just about the same. And uh, of course, it's not harmful directly to breathe in carbon dioxide. It doesn't, doesn't really hurt our bodies. And the other thing about carbon emissions is that for most of human history, at least, they've been directly tightly correlated with economic growth more carbon emissions has just been a sign of people getting richer and being able to do more, do more things, um, create more products that people can use in their homes. So all those things make the, the, the challenge of dealing with carbon emissions really somewhat more challenging than dealing with other kinds of, of pollutants like sulfur dioxide or something, because people know when they encounter sulfur dioxide, it burns their lungs, makes them feel bad. They want to get rid of it. it there's nothing really good about it. Um, and so they want to put in place cleaner technologies. With, with carbon, it, it's a little more complicated. You have to get people to care about this problem that affects them indirectly because the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere do have so many effects for the way our, our climate on Earth works. Of course, it affects the, the level of the, of the oceans. Um, which is something that affects a lot of people's lives. So carbon dissipates in the air, so it's not seen, and we can't smell it, but it's necessary. Right. I mean, it's, it's a ma one of the major products of combustion, um, which is sort of burning things to, to make our society go. And, and that's pretty much been the story of, of, of an industrializing world over the last few centuries. Um, 
Of course, today we do have access to zero carbon uh, energy technologies in a way that's just now in the last couple of decades becoming economically competitive and, and perhaps in the decades to come will will become economically dominant. But at least right now, at this moment today in 2020, still most of the world's energy is generated through those combustion processes that put uh, carbon dioxide out into the atmosphere. Most of the world's transportation is driven by those same kinds of technologies. So this is really how the world goes, uh, at least for the moment. So let me move to the Paris Agreement, which you asked about. The Paris Climate Agreement um, was entered into in uh, 2015, became effective 2016, and it was one of the major achievements of the Obama administration getting the United States to be a leading participant in that agreement. Um, it is a non-binding agreement. That was sort of the cost of doing business without Congress, uh, is that the president could not enter us into a binding treaty. And so every country sets its own goals, its own path of how it's going to improve its carbon emissions below business as usual. Um, and it, it makes a commitment uh, to, honor, to honor those goals. Um, and so the United States goals have to do with reducing emissions by, uh, I believe, 26% from earlier levels by the year 2025. Um, and so the, achieving that at the time we entered into that commitment looked like it was going to require putting in place a number of policies that the Obama administration had already started in on and probably another set of policies beyond that. How did the U.S. rank in terms of that 20% goal that they set? How did we rank among other major countries? Unfortunately, it's not so easy to make apples to apples comparisons oh, okay. because different countries um, quantify the kinds of things they were trying to achieve differently. Um, I, I think there was a sense that the U.S. goals were, were moderately ambitious for us. Of course, we're starting we're starting out from the point of view of, of the large economies in the world. Ours is the heaviest emitter by per capita standards. Um, so there's a lot of room for improvement. On the other hand, America's by, uh, per capita carbon emissions have fallen quite a bit since the 1990s already. Uh, so, so we've already made some progress um, before, before the Paris Agreement. What about China? Because I think they are what I see as the next largest emitter. Do you recall what their commitment was? So China is right now by far the largest carbon emitter in the world. Of course, it's also the largest country in the world by population. And so okay. on a per capita basis, the U.S. is putting a lot more into the atmosphere. But China is about twice as uh, big a carbon emitter in absolute terms than the U.S. I see. We're going to go to break really quick, Philip, and we're going to continue this very interesting conversation after the break. We've been with Dr. Philip Wallach with the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to earthx.org to register and start talking and to register for their October conferences. 
Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority that we need right now. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods, Natural Grocers, Central Market, Sunflower Shops, as well as online and available for download at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with Dr. Philip Wallach with the American Enterprise Institute. Again, thank you so much for being with us. And you were just making us smarter about the Paris Climate Agreement and some of the specifics, but more so in terms of what the U.S. had promised to do. Now, Philip, assuming that the biggest players, again, in the global climate change body politic are the U.S., because of how much we emit, and China because of its size. Can you tell us about each country's particular and perhaps their most pervasive contribution to that problem? With carbon emissions, you just mostly just think about energy consumption. They're, okay. they're really pretty tightly tied up with each other. Um, I think there are some questions about methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, and, and we can think about ways of reducing methane emissions. Um, that are a little bit more targeted to, to different kinds of industries and, and, and natural gas uh, mining. But generally, it's just about energy emissions. And so uh, one thing to note is that during 2020, as we've had this awful COVID-19 pandemic to deal with, that's put energy consumption way down. And so that's kind of a strategy for carbon emissions reductions that we do not want to be pursuing so now the indication, though, is that that is due to the transportation emissions, because that's primarily, not certainly all, but that's primarily what the pandemic has caused, is a lot less transportation in cars and buses and airplanes, airplanes as and, well. So that's been in the U.S., transportation. What about China? That was extremely well, extremely dramatic in China as well back oh, okay. in the first part of the year. I mean, their lockdowns were much, much more severe than ours. So you really had um, people staying home. A lot of cities that usually have coverings of smog around them, the, the local air pollution just dissipated because there was so much less vehicular travel and less industrial activity. Philip, though, what would have been or should have been the work that the U.S., China, and others should have achieved over the last year with regards to the Paris Climate Agreement? I know that we pulled out and a lot of our policy and our work and our laws were turned back. But what is it we should have or perhaps had initially estimated that we were going to achieve that wasn't achieved because of our political situation? Sure. So, I mean, it's unquestionable that the, the Trump administration has, has rolled back quite a lot of the Obama administration's um, regulatory policies meant to decrease carbon emissions, uh, and, and they really haven't done much to replace them with something else. Um, and there's all sorts of litigation that's ongoing to say whether their rollbacks were permissible or not, but for the most part, they're just not in effect right now. And I don't think there's much indication that the Trump administration is interested in, in putting anything new in effect. That doesn't mean that there's no policies in the United States happening, right? Because there's a lot of state and local governments who have taken the 
upon themselves to help the country uh, meet its Paris climate change commitment. And so you, you definitely see some parts of the country, especially in, in the blue, blue states and blue cities, uh, where, where they've continued to increase renewable requirements and those kinds of policies that do move us. And you've certainly seen a continuing growth in the electric car share of the market in the United States. I think there's a big question about, um, you know, how much of our emissions improvement is going to come from uh, energy reduction and how much is going to come from technological improvements that just move our energy use into less carbon intensive forms. Um, so, I mean, one of the best things that we have going for us over the past year is we've seen solar prices going way down. That's continuing a trend that's been going on for a while, but really at this point, they're getting to be cost competitive with fossil fuels. And if you're building a new power plant, um, I've heard that a new solar power plant is now cost competitive with coal. And I think here in Texas, we closed down another coal plant over the last year. I remember reading and writing an article on it. So that was exciting. So, Philip, let's turn now more to our domestic front. You mentioned before, and in some of your writings, the geography of climate politics. Tell us about this. Help us understand this. Sure. So, I mean, of course, the basic fact in the United States is you've got Democrats who are pushing for more climate policies, Republicans uh, reluctant. Uh, but I think if you dig in a little, a lot of that has to do with geography as much as anything else. So, People in the interior of the country are, are much less eager to pay costs to, to stop climate change than people on the coast. Part of that is just because people on the coast are more threatened. Uh, we have a congressman, uh, his name is Matt Gates. He's from the first district of Florida. He's one of the sort of biggest supporters of President Trump in the House of Representatives, uh, um, and not somebody who's trying to show how liberal he is. He, you know, his district is right on the Gulf of Mexico, borders Alabama, it's the panhandle of Florida. He's become an outspoken advocate for climate change policies now because he says, listen, people in my district know the waters are rising. We don't have the luxury of, of, of thinking about whether climate change is real. It's happening to us right now. We need to do something. So that's a pretty um, conservative guy. On the other hand, you have Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who has said, well, mankind has actually flourished in warmer temperatures. Right? Well, he's from Wisconsin. I mean, climate change looks like a pretty different proposition if you live in Wisconsin compared to living in, in, in coastal Florida, right? I mean, maybe, maybe a couple degrees warmer in the winter doesn't sound so bad in Wisconsin. So, I think a lot of the politics do get driven by the geography, um, and unfortunately, it's also where the, the, the composition of power usage in the country. A lot of those interior states are the ones most dependent on coal power still, and so asking them to transition away from coal uh, is a more expensive proposition because um, they, they just haven't haven't done it as they've been reliant on coal for so long. Of course, a lot of them are also coal mining states, such that the, even though coal mining has already, you know, had a precipitous fall as an industry, the idea that it's going to get driven into into the ground is is very painful to them. So, 
the geography of it really does have a lot to do with it, and, and it's going to make it a very difficult problem, whichever party, you know, is in control of Congress and the White House. Most of us have heard about the Green New Deal, but don't actually know a lot about its positions and proposed actions. Can you tell us briefly about this and how it would be facilitated and how it would be coordinated or at odds with the Paris Agreement? Well, the Green New Deal, in my view, is sort of a a marketing vehicle for an, an agenda by especially some of the younger Democrats in in Congress, um, I'd say the emphasis is is as much on the New Deal part as it is on the Green part. Um, It has a lot of different elements in there, including job guarantees for every American, free higher education. It also commits to moving us to 100% renewable energy as soon as possible and 100% vehicles powered by renewable energy uh, as soon as possible. So it's, it's extremely ambitious. And, and frankly, it's, it's more of an aspirational document than it is a, an agenda that anyone expects to get passed through Congress right away. I mean, if we were to have a Biden administration uh, and Democrats controlling both houses of Congress, we would nevertheless not expect anything like the Green New Deal to be passed out of there. The Senate, in the Senate this, uh, at the beginning of this Congress, Republicans forced to vote uh, and it was the vote was zero four fifty seven against. So it's kind of a a messaging document. But I think it what it does show is that a lot of folks on the progressive side of the spectrum see climate change as, as an issue that they want to see at the very top of the Democratic Party's agenda, um, which frankly it hasn't always been. And so uh, if if there is a new Democratic administration, there's certainly going to be a lot of fighting about. Um, just how urgent uh, we, we need to treat climate change. There's a good and a bad. Like you said, it's a marketing tool, and it does raise the purview of green climate change, but then some of the other stuff in there can give green a bad name, as has been done in the past. Last thing, very, very quickly. What would you say is the good news about climate policy over the last year, and what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions? Well, we probably can't fly much less than we've been doing in the last six months. Um, I I think, um, you know, everybody does make energy consumption choices in their own lives. How big a car you get, how big a house you get, um, you know, those are are the big choices you're making that have to do with um, your energy consumption. And and everybody can think about climate as a part of that. Um, You know, I think as we go into the future and as these solar panels get cheaper, more and more people decide to install those on their, on the home, on their, on their roof of their home. Um, It's something that's becoming an active possibility. So I think that the the technological development is now making it possible for ordinary people to, to make these consumption choices that not only are are friendly to the environment, but, uh, but seem appealing to them in terms of cost savings as well that they should take a look now and actually analyze as opposed to the Jurassic activity of assuming because it's green or sustainable, it costs more. That equation no longer is true. Absolutely. I mean, our modern light bulbs um, that everyone ought to go install in their house are are superior to the old incandescents, and and they're a lot better 
in terms of energy consumption as well. They're brighter, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Philip. We really appreciate it. We have been with Dr. Philip Wallach with the American Enterprise Institute, and we really appreciate you helping us unpack uh, some of what's going on today and has gone on the last year in the climate change politics. Thank you. We hope to have you back. Thanks with for us. having me. Living Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with part two of our show today on climate change and the politics of climate change. Now, over the past decade, the health impacts of climate change have been keenly felt and will become even more pressing over the decade to come. Climate change legislation is a central concern across government at all levels. And it's not solely just about climate change, but also has to be embedded into our public health policies as well. As well, the business sector has a great part to play. Nationally and internationally, we need to be able to reward and punish private and public actors for their environmental action. And yet, in spite of the evidence at hand, climate change remains the toughest and perhaps most intractable political issue we as a society have faced. This is not to say that there hasn't been progress. In the U.S., the amount of greenhouse gas emissions has held steady since 1990, even though our economy and our population has grown. And we count that as a big win. This, again, is a lot to chew on. So let's unpack this a little. And here today to help us out with this is Howard Lerner. Howard is president and executive director and founder of the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Chicago. Howard is an experienced public interest litigation attorney, serving as the president and executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center, which is the Midwest's premier environmental legal advocacy and eco-business innovation organization. Howard founded the Environmental Law and Policy Center in 1993 as an entrepreneurial startup following his work as a general counsel for business and professional people for the public interest, which is an organization that specializes in policy advocacy and complex environmental, energy, economic development, and civil rights litigation. He served as a senior advisor for energy and environmental issues for President Barack Obama's uh, presidential campaign in 2007 through 2008. Welcome, Howard. We are so glad that you could make time to be with us. Very good to join you and join your listeners today. Well, we are excited as well. Howard, I want to start off on a question that came up at the end of the last segment that we really didn't get a chance to deal with, but it's intriguing, so we want to talk about it. And that is, what does climate change thought, and perhaps action as well, look like on the right side of the political spectrum today? And how has it changed and why? You know, it's changed a lot. And part of it is changing because everybody is seeing what's happening with wildfires out west and hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding. You know, let's face it, you know, when there's flooding and hurricanes in Texas and Louisiana and there are wildfires in the mountain states and the west coast, 
it's not distinguishing between moderates, conservatives, and liberals, or Republicans and Democrats. It's our homes. It's our communities. That's bringing a new reality, I think, to everyone. So if you look at where the polling is and what people are saying, if you will, on the street and to their friends and to their neighbors, there's a large set of the population that understands, accepts the science, and believes climate change is real. We need to deal with it. We need to deal with it now. There's a small percentage, mostly on the right, that either denies it or believes that it's part humans and part natural cycle and the wildfires and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and flooding are aberrational. But those folks in the middle, you know, folks who are moderate and conservatives on the right, I, I think you're beginning to see folks look at and say, something real is happening here. When we see the extreme weather events that for any of us who have lived more than a few years, and that includes the two of us, I mean, we're just seeing a heck of a lot more in terms of the wildfires and the hurricanes and the tornadoes, the flooding. That's real. It affects our lives. It affects people's homes. It affects our communities. And I think that's led most people to say, hey, let's show a little common sense here. We need to do something about this. Yeah, I think it's getting harder and harder every day to call it aberrational. I know here in Dallas alone, twice last year, we had two very substantial weather events that caused a lot of damage. One wasn't even a tornado. It was like what they called it a straight line wind event. And then maybe about six months or less from that event, we had a massive tornado that tore right through the most expensive housing part of our city. And so you have to look at that because it's so close together. Yeah. To take another part of the country, take the Midwest. You know, you're seeing flooding happen three times in 20 years, 100-year floods that are a 100-year flood, of course, means it happens once every 100 years. It's happening three times, four times in 20 years. And again, that flooding affects people in rural communities, small towns. It's affecting the city of Chicago as the Great Lakes are at almost record highs and are flooding uh, shoreline properties. You know, and people look at this, and this is about people in our communities and where we live in our homes. And it's not like only Democratic homes are getting flooded or only Republican homes are getting flooded. You know, what's the old line about you can't do much about the weather? Well, you know, we're looking at the weather and we're saying, you know, the scientists, and it's interesting, in the Midwest, when you talk about scientists at the University of Wisconsin or the University of Iowa or Iowa State or University of Michigan, Michigan State, people trust those scientists because, you know, hey, if it's a football Saturday, you know, everybody's in Iowa either rooting for Iowa or Iowa State. And, you know, if they didn't go to one of them, then their brother or their sister or their neighbor or their cousin did. You know, it's like if you're in Wisconsin on Saturday, everybody flies Badger Red, and on Sunday, Packers Green and Gold. I mean, it's you know, we we trust those people at the universities that are in our communities, our state schools, and they're and telling us something. They really are. It's getting harder and harder to ignore. Howard, though, what do you think is the current political will? I guess both legislatively and with the voting public with regards to climate change policy 
and action. Do you think we're at a point where the public is driving the legislature or what's the will, right? Well, we're certainly getting to that tipping point. If you look at it historically, four years, eight years, 12 years ago, there really weren't that many people who were voting on the basis of climate change. It's not the top issue today. Obviously, that's COVID-19. But you're seeing the polling data say in a number of states and a number of those swing states that everybody focuses on all the time, for some people, climate change is a voting issue. Beginning to get out to vote and they're voting because of climate change. Some of that is just people, you know, across the political spectrum. You know, I'd love to see the research. Is it people who's you know, been in the middle of a hurricane or people who've been in the middle of a wildfire. But the fact of the matter is climate change keeps going up in terms of an issue that people are paying attention to. It's affecting their vote. And you're now seeing political leadership on both sides of the aisle saying, we have to do something. Some of the solutions from some of the Republican members of Congress are a little different than some of the Democratic members of Congress. But it's now one of those issues where You know, people on both sides of the aisle are saying, let's get real. This is happening. We need to do something about it and find a way to work together. I think the opinions are changing exponentially as well. The other day, I was reviewing the Pew Institute research, and that was 2016. And I am not comfortable quoting that anymore. I really feel it's changed fairly substantially since then. I think it showed that about 73% of the public believed in climate change or that it existed, but then a very minuscule percentage said they were willing to do anything about it or they were changing their lives to do anything about it. It's been four years now, and I really feel like there has been a, a faster shift in that four years over those attitudes and that that is due to a lot of what we've seen on the ground. Yeah, people are dealing with reality. And when you get members of Congress who are, you know, saying, oh, I don't think this is real, I don't think it's happening, there's a certain number of voters who, much more so than four years ago, are saying, you're out of touch. If the right takes control of our legislature next year, what do you think would be the most significant good things, as well as maybe the bad things, that may come about as a result of that? Well, first of all, you're seeing a interest among Republicans on carbon pricing. And you see interest from a lot of different industry groups. You know, keep in mind, it's not simply, oh, Democrats like wind power and Republicans don't. In Texas, where you are, wind power is booming. Wind power is booming in Iowa. You know, the old battle in Iowa, you know, people say, well, Texas is number one in terms of wind power. And in Iowa, they say, no, no, no. Per capita, we have more wind power. Yeah. Now, neither Texas nor Iowa are exactly known as being especially, you know, green democratic states. Mm-hmm. Uh, wind power is working for the economy, good for jobs, good for economic growth, good for the environment. And from the wind power industry and those states' standpoint, you get a little bit of carbon pricing in there that helps certain industries. So you're seeing some businesses come around, not all, but some saying, let's get a price for carbon in there somewhere. Sounds good. Howard, we're going to go to break right now, and we will be back on the other side to continue this most interesting conversation. 
We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festivals, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to earthx.org to register and start talking, and to register for their October conferences, and to check out the streaming TV schedule. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for North Texas and the North Texas Communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods grocers, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as free online available for download at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with part two of today's show on climate change, the politics of it all, with our guest, Howard Lerner, president and executive director and founder of the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Chicago. Again, thank you so much for being with us, Howard. We really appreciate it. Good to join you. Just before the break, we were talking about what we might expect if the right takes control of the legislature next year. So I want to flip that over and ask if the left takes control of the legislature next year, what do you think might be the most significant good things and perhaps bad things that may happen related to climate change? Well, first of all, as you're seeing from Vice President Biden, but you're also seeing from a lot of members of Congress, a very ambitious, some might say aggressive, others would say very thoughtful and ambitious climate plans. The Vice President has a climate plan The House Select Committee has come out with its plan. The Senate Select Committee has come out with its plan. And it's a combination of both regulatory mechanisms and policy mechanisms to come out of Congress and things like extending the investment tax credit for solar energy uh, and so forth. Um, Those are more robust than what's coming from the Republican side of the aisle. And I don't know whether all of them will get done, but clearly from the Democratic side of it, little less interest on carbon pricing, uh, more interest in using tax policy, regulatory policy, uh, and the federal government stepping up in terms of its own practices. Now, the federal government is a huge buyer of materials and paper and cars and trucks, um, of electricity, of natural gas, and it can buy green. And greening up procurement can make a big deal in terms of the environment especially when you have the federal government then aligning with counties and cities and state governments around the country. Exactly. Just dealing with or tightening up their own footprint. Exactly right. It will do a lot. So, Howard, though, to what extent do you think and to what extent are you seeing companies, the private sector, willing to act on climate change and or to change what they do and how they do things in order to make a difference? I mean, you're seeing companies around the country and globally stepping up. In the one hand, you're seeing companies like uh, Google and Microsoft um, saying, we're going to be buying green power for our needs. We're going to be locating our data centers, and we're going to be trying to find ways to power them off solar and wind instead of off fossil fuel. 
You're seeing a number of major manufacturers step up. There's a group called RE100, Renewable Energy 100, which are businesses that are all committing to buy 100% renewable energy. And that includes companies you know, that are in retail, like the Targets and Walmarts and manufacturers and tech companies. And now we're seeing splits in the oil industry. Uh, BP is out there and Shell sending a very different message than some of the, say, Chevron. And uh, we're going to see which of their views of the oil industry turn out to be right. Uh, but across the board, we're seeing businesses step up and say, when it comes to climate change, number one, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, and number two, we want to figure out ways we can make money off this. Uh, clean energy is going to be a very growing, fast part of the economy. And you're seeing a lot of businesses step up and saying, we're seeing where this is going. And we want to make sure that if the clean energy economy booms, uh, you know, we're going to have a chance to uh, do well by it. To take a side issue, you mentioned mm -hmm. Shell and BP, and then you mentioned Chevron. And, of course, those are all citizens of Texas. Absolutely. But you say they're taking different tax. What is that about? Well, first of all, when it comes to some of the regulatory rollbacks that uh, President Trump has tried to do, take a very particular one, regulation on methane emissions. Um, methane is a very, very potent greenhouse gas in the short run, depending on which scientific study, you know, five to 10 times as potent as carbon dioxide. A number of the oil companies said to the Trump administration, don't roll this back. This is a standard that makes sense. And we don't want to be whipsawed. We've begun to do some things because of the Obama era methane emissions reduction. And now you want to change it. And if Vice President Biden gets elected, it's going to flip the other way. We don't want to be whipsawed. So a number of the oil companies weighed in publicly and said, don't roll it back. Uh, Chevron took a different view. Um, a number of the oil companies are, reduce, are producing their outlooks for the future. BP did a set of presentations, I think, about a week and a half ago. And they have a different view of the future. I mean, some of the oil companies believe that we're moving toward peak oil and they are redeploying assets to renewables. And some of them don't. I think they just have different analytics. They have different economics and they have different plans for the future. And we're going to see how that works out. But the oil industry used to be very, very united when it came to opposing environmental regulations, when it came to a economic view of the world of what was going to happen with oil and other energy uh, sources in the market, both on the regulatory side and on the sort of future forecast side, where do they make capital investment? You're seeing some real different views. But I think the oil industry is like something I learned in graduate school. At the beginning of the year, every course in grad school and the business school, they will tell us about this saying, but it's very true. It says, you know, why do you think the railroads declined or almost went out of business? It's because they didn't realize that they were in the transportation business. They thought they were in the railroad business. And I think that's how I see the oil companies. They're in the energy business. That's right. Not just the oil business. And what that says is they should be the future providers of renewable energy. Now, before we got off on our side thing on oil, you were telling us about a lot of the things that 
private sector businesses were doing. So let me ask you this. Do you feel or anticipate that the private sector is doing enough to drive the field forward? Yes, well, they, you know, can they be the drivers? They, they certainly ought to be one of the drivers. Um, we need climate policy at the federal level, at the global level, and at the state and city level. You know, as a practical matter, it doesn't matter to the atmosphere whether greenhouse gas comes from a power plant in Indiana, India, or Indonesia. It has the same effect on the atmosphere. So the United States being part of global uh, initiatives, like getting back into the Paris Accord, is extraordinarily important. We're all in this together. We have to solve the problems together. Uh, at the national level, we have to have national policy. There are things that only the federal government can do. You know, for example, the production tax credit for wind power helped drive all that wind power development in Texas that Boone Pickens was going into, and that uh, President George Bush, when he was governor of Texas, uh, saw as one of being his proud achievements. Uh, wind power is a big business in Texas, is supplying more and more of the electricity supply, ditto in states like Iowa. And you know what? 20 years ago, when we talked about Illinois becoming a big wind power state, people thought we were blowing sort of hot air. Illinois is now a top six wind power state in the country. Cool. You know, whoever thought, you know, if you went back and rolled back the tape, we're old enough to do that between the two of us. If you rolled it back 20 years and you said, did you think that the top six states would include Texas, Oklahoma, Illinois, and Iowa? You know, California, oh, sure. Yeah. New York, maybe, <laughs> sure. But that the top six states would include Iowa and Illinois and Texas and Oklahoma, I think most people would have said to us, come on. You know, federal policy when it comes to the investment tax credit uh, for solar production tax credit for wind power, uh, clean energy standards uh, make a big difference. State policies like the renewable portfolio standard in Texas, Illinois, make a big difference, California, big difference too. So policy matters. When you talk about the private sector, absolutely, this is a both and, it's not an either or. But when you talk about the private sector, that involves a whole lot of very different businesses. So the real answer to your question is we're seeing more and more businesses step up, and that's good. I want to talk just really briefly about local issues, because it is local as well as national. What are you seeing are some of the most effective and far-reaching and impactful local policies that we've seen over the last few years? First of all, energy efficiency, best, fastest, least expensive way to help solve our climate change problems. You're seeing cities around the country getting smart about what do they do with city buildings. I mean, who's in favor of wasting energy and wasting money? Why does that make any sense? So you're making investments in municipal buildings that help the taxpayers by saving money, help avoid pollution, help keep money in the local economy and create jobs. And you're seeing improvements in energy efficiency building codes. And that's happening everywhere in places in California, but in Austin, Texas, and in the Midwest. You know, it makes sense when you do energy efficiency stuff in your home, you save money on your electric bills. You put in an LED light bulb. You avoid pollution, you save money, and you don't have to change the bulb as often. These are common sense things that people are doing. It's good for the environment. It's good for our pocketbooks. That's making a difference. 
Thank you so much, Howard, because you addressed our last question that we always ask all of our guests, and that's what can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions? And you just told us. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Howard. You've made us smarter. It's been very enjoyable talking with you, and we look forward to having you back again. Thank you. Good to join you and your listeners. Take care. Thank you. We've been with Howard Lerner with the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Chicago. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, such as yourselves. Each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Join us again next week for more on Climate Change Month. Thank you.